0: We shall turn now to the Word of God and we shall turn to the book of the Revelation and back to the chapter 2. And uh, as enabled, we would consider the seven particular promises that are made to those who would overcome in the seven churches of Asia. And it is this overcoming in particular that we wish to concentrate our minds upon. These who overcome and how they overcome and where indeed they do overcome. What we are uh, to understand is this, these seven messages are directed to seven churches. They're not directed to the heathen, to pagans. They're not directed to members of the ungodly, worldly society that existed all over Asia. These messages are directed to the covenant Community, the professing church of Jesus Christ. Whatever their state, whatever their condition in the various churches, one thing is obvious, those members of each of the communities were given particular promises from Christ And these promises are for those who overcome. Where are they to overcome? We have a tendency to think, ah, well, anyone who's a child of God, who overcomes, they're battling there with the world, They're battling with the flesh. They're battling with the devil. And so they've got to overcome all the opposition that they meet with as they journey through the world. That is perfectly true. But that is not what the Savior, the exalted Christ, is talking about. He is talking about overcoming his professing people, individual children of God, overcoming where? In the churches. Why do they need to overcome in the churches? Because of the state and the condition that exists in the churches. We have noted errors, false doctrine, false practices, evidence of compromise in the churches. Not condoned by Christ, but condemned by him. And thus, he calls, he that overcometh, You can't just sit back and accept, well, this is the state of the church. It's sad, we lament over it, but really, we're not required to do anything about it. Let us look very briefly at these seven promises before considering the actual overcoming. And we'll just look at them very briefly. In the second chapter, we have the address to the church in Ephesus. And their problem is they have left their first love. Now, what do we read in verse 7? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, that couldn't be clearer. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Not to individuals as such, but the churches. The bodies of professing believers, the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And here is Christ making very precious promises. You know what Peter said, he had given to us exceeding great and precious promises. He is one of these great and precious promises. I will give to him to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst Of the paradise of God, and that takes us right back to Genesis. Right back to the creation. Right back to the original abode of our first parents. And when they ate the tree of the the fruit of the tree that was forbidden, because they were out of communion with God, they were driven out of the paradise of God, out of the garden of Eden, they were driven out and a flaming sword stood between them and entrance into the garden and particularly to the tree of life. What's the Savior saying to them that overcome? Not them that are just officially members. Not they who have an attachment but to they who overcome the terrible spirit that exists in the church in Ephesus. You've left your first love. Now some in Ephesus might just carry on. Doesn't really matter. We're not going to change. We're not going to reform. We're not going to repent. We're not going to accept what we've heard about our condition. Now Jesus says, if you take seriously what I've said, if you lay it to heart, and if you repent of it, and you overcome this spirit that exists, you will enjoy fellowship and communion with me that Restored relationship with God. That's what it really means. In the midst of the paradise of God, what did Adam, what did God do? We're told he came in the cool of the day and he talked with Adam. But that came to an end when Adam's driven out. And here's the Savior saying, If you overcome the compromising spirit, then you will enjoy communion and fellowship with me as it was originally. I will come and walk with you, and you will walk with me. Now, we're going over these very briefly. Then, the second uh, church that is mentioned is the church in Samarna a church that is suffering persecution and opposition, and uh, so on. And in verse 11, we read, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches again. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now, this was a most precious and appropriate promise under the conditions because these people were suffering death and persecution. They were experiencing brutality and persecution and they were suffering faithfully even unto death. But that was not pleasant. Now, the Savior says, you who overcome the fear of persecution, you who overcome Satan's devices and opposition, this is my promise. You will not be hurt of the second death. Now, of course, that takes us to the end of the book of the Revelation, to the judgment when a man die, as it were, the second death, they are dead spiritually to begin with. They are dead in that they are separated from God. But the second death is eternal death. Those in Ephesus, they were dead, spiritually dead in trespasses and in sins, but they were quickened. But the sentence of the second death guarantees no quickening ever. It is eternal death. And here's what Jesus promises. You who are battling with persecution and opposition. Fear none of these things. Because, he says, I will enable you to persevere and you will not suffer any hurt of the second death. Then the third church, of course, is the uh, church in Pergamos. And in verse 17... We read, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Of course, there are all kinds of theories as to what the significance of this promise is. But the promise doesn't have any significance without an awareness of the state and the condition of the church where these people are given this promise. And here the church in Uh, Pergamos was meeting with opposition, that is certainly true. But they were also compromising in that they were permitting false doctrine and false teaching uh, in their midst. And uh, they were allowing ungodly practices, ungodly habits, as we saw earlier, in among them. He that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. That immediately would take the minds of these people back to the journey through the wilderness. When their fathers, when the godly Israelites were redeemed out of Egypt and they're going through the Wilderness, what did God do? He provided manna mysteriously for them. It was mysterious food, not as a result of their hard labor and cultivation. It was given to them in grace. It was all without their own labor. All they had to do was gather it And eat it. What's the promise here to these people? It's the promise of grace. I will give to eat of the hidden manna. The Israelites didn't know where that manna came from except from God mysteriously through the night as they slept. They didn't contribute to its production whatever. They didn't go out and cultivate the fields and work hard to produce it. It was produced freely and given to them by the grace of God. But also this is hidden manna. And it is to be partaken of those to whom he will give a white stone. And in the stone engraved a new name written. Now, of course, John and others to whom he was writing would have been familiar with the Roman practices, indeed the Greek practices before that. Nowadays, when someone is able to achieve a medal, the Olympic Games are presented with a medal, gold or silver or bronze, whatever. But that was not the case back then. Those who triumphed were given a white stone and their names were engraved in the stone so that when they were brought to the great banquet for the winners, This, as it were, was their ticket of admittance. They had the white stone. Their name was on it. They could present it. I belong to the elite. I belong to the victorious. I belong to the winners. And that's, in reality, what is here being promised. Victory, you will triumph and you will receive your white stone. You will receive uh, the guarantee of admission into my presence to be accepted by me. But there also a, a white stone which no man knoweth. Accepting he that receiveth it. Now, of course, even to this day, it goes back way back into history. And I understand in some parts of the world, even yet, some of the secret societies, I know the Freemasons used to use it, but many of the secret societies still do. They have a little box. One half of it has white stones the other half is Blackstones. I remember on one occasion being in the presence of a Freemason who'd come from a meeting where they were accepting new members. And his wife was inquiring about a certain individual, didn't mean a thing to me. And she heard him say, ah, he was Black Bull." he was black bald, meaning he was rejected because there was a secret ballot, you see and if you were prepared to accept so and so as a new member you put a white ball or a white stone into the container if you rejected him he used a black one instead. So you see the white is evidence of acceptance. And here the Savior is speaking of the acceptance of his people, even though they may be rejected by others who've adopted false doctrine and false teaching, they will be given. The evidence of victory. The evidence that they overcome the difficulties. They are accepted into the glorious company of the saints of God. And they partake of the hidden manna. They feed and they are sustained upon the hidden manna of the word of God. The hidden manner of Christ Himself. He is promising, He will sustain them. He will receive them, and He will res- He will sustain them. He will take them in, and He will provide for them. But they've got to overcome, as we shall see. Now then, moving on to the uh, next uh, church, uh, the. Church that we have in Thyatira, in verse 26 we're told, he that overcometh, and this is different to the other six churches, he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end. Now right away you can see that the overcomer must persevere to the end. He overcomes to the end. We shall see the importance of that shortly. He that shall overcome unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. Now that sounds a rather Great promise indeed, an unusual promise that one would ask, how could it ever be fulfilled? He shall rule, uh, I will give him power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father. Now, where did Christ receive this promise? From his Father. You go to Psalm 2. And there you have the glorious Christ by an eternal decree. The nations, the heathen, are to be given to him for his inheritance. And they are called upon, kiss the son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Now here, what is the promise? You will share with me the fulfillment of my father's promise. You shall share with me. Oh, if you compromise the truth, you can't share with me this promise. You can't partake of it. You cannot possibly compromise the truth and expect to play any part, have any role in the fulfillment of this promise. But if you overcome, what shall you do? You shall then have power over the nation. How you think of it? Ignorant fisherman, ordinary man that Jesus Christ called, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And when the time come after three years of training and instruction, and then the promise of the Holy Spirit to come and lead them into the truth, and bring to their memory everything that they'd been taught. What were they to do? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And lo, I am with you. We go together. Just as here. As I received of my Father, I received the promise. Now I'm taking you and embracing you And we go together. I am with you, even unto the end of the world. Wherever you go, you set out from Jerusalem to Samaria, to Rome, to Athens, to Corinth. I go with you. What am I going to do? I'm going to build my church. And I'm going to conquer the nations not with the material sword or the physical arm of flesh, but the word of God that the Apostle Paul had, the gospel, he says, was the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. What is here the promise about? He shall rule them With a rod of iron he shall conquer them, he shall subdue them. What has conquered the nations of the heathen throughout this world of ours? The gospel. What brought men who were savages, immoral, living without law or knowledge of God, cannibals, killing one another, slaughtering one another constantly. What subdued all that? The mighty power of the gospel. But if that gospel is compromised, there's no power. What would Paul have to go out to the nations with? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It's the power of God. Take away that gospel. What's left? And that's what here the Redeemer is promising. Overcome the dangers. Overcome the threats. Overcome the compromise. Overcome the degeneracy overcome the apostatizing, overcome it, and you will share with me the triumph of the gospel over the nations. Now then, in the chapter 3, we go to the church in Sardis. Verse 5. He that overcometh the him shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father <coughs> and his angels. He that overcometh the seal, no one else. They don't overcome. This promise is totally irrelevant. There's no application whatever this same that overcomes what's the state of the church in Sardis there's only a remnant left who are sticking faithfully to the truth a few names left in Sardis who have not compromised a few names that have not defiled their garments they have sought to maintain their integrity and they've sought to remain faithful to Christ. They have not compromised the truth and they have not soiled their testimony or their witness. Now what does he say to these, to you see him that overcome, I shall clothe you with white raiment My righteousness, you are seeking to maintain yourselves as a pure, as a holy people and witness. I will clothe you with white raiment, the white raiment of my own righteousness. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. That is a most astonishing, most remarkable promise. I will confess his name. I will not blot his name out of the book of life. He will be mine, and when the books are opened... His name will be there amongst those who overcame. His name will be amongst those who overcame because, as we shall see, they they were in possession of spiritual life. But I will confess his name. Where? What does that word confess mean? It means to acknowledge it to openly confess it to present it now you think of it it's unlikely that any of us will probably ever have the privilege uh, of being presented to the Queen of England or the Commonwealth I better be correct anyway there are these great occasions, great regal occasions. And all the high and mighty come along for the grand occasion. Now they just don't wander up casually and say good night, your majesty, it's nice to be here, nice to see you, I've come for the banquet. You just don't do that you have to be presented. And some official has got his list there of all the names. Lord so-and-so, lady so-and-so, the heir of here and the heiress of there and so on. And so he comes and he brings Lord so-and-so and his lady on his arm Your Majesty, Lord so-and-so, Lady so-and-so. And they shake hands, and they receive. Their names are confessed. Their names are acknowledged. Their names are presented. And they have a right to be there. Someone comes along... What's your name, sir? I can't find it in this list. I'm afraid, sir, you can't be admitted here tonight. I'm afraid your majesty will not accept you. You cannot come in. You are forbidden. Ah, but I am so-and-so. It matters not, sir... Your name's not on this list. I can't present you. I don't know you from Adam. I cannot present you to her majesty. Here's what Christ says. You little remnant there hanging on, standing for the truth, maybe discouraged at times, maybe thinking, It's so difficult, will we manage to persevere and keep going? What does Christ say? I will confess his name that overcomes. I will bring him right into the presence of God the Father. And all the angels, the host of the angels will look on. And I will present him. And I will say, Father, here is this poor sinner that you give me in the everlasting covenant. And I have redeemed her. And I shed my blood for him. And I have atoned for every sin they ever committed. And I washed them in my blood of suffering. And they're clean. They're free from all condemnation. Their name. Their reputation. They are credible before all of heaven. Thy Father. I present him, And the Father receives them. I was thinking, what an occasion it must be. I know that the book of the Revelation is full of mysterious symbols. And we have to get behind the symbols to understand it. This presentation must be a moment of heavenly glory and majesty. the great hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, one of the verses presents it well. Oh, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. That's what he does. Brings them into the Father's presence to the great banquet. Here He is, Father, here she is. I brought them from the dunghill, but look, they're clothed in my righteousness. Not an angel can wear what they're wearing. No angel and all, they're all looking on. They can't wear the garment that I've clothed him in, or she is clothed in. And if he cannot, re- if he cannot receive that poor sinner, he'd have to reject the very angels. What a marvelous moment. You think of those who have maybe gone even from this congregation. They've already gone through that. Brought nigh. Christ bringing them into the presence of the Father. And all the angels looking on. And he presents a poor, worthless, wretched sinner. Never thought much of themselves here. But they're presented in glory. That's what here the Savior is promising. Now then, we go on to the church in Philadelphia, and the promise, verse 12 is there, him that overcometh, will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out, go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Can you think of any document that you might possess that has these kind of details on it? And what the purpose of that document is? What details do you have in your passport? You have the details of your name and your citizenship and so on, just like here. What's written? What is it that the promise guarantees? I will write upon him with an indelible writing. What will I write? The name of my God, the name of my Father. Where were they born? They were born from above. I will write the name of my God, my Father and your Father. When were they born? From above. And then the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, their citizenship, that cometh the new Jerusalem. They are the citizens of the church, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him, My new name hears the promise of heavenly citizenship. Christ is their passport into heaven itself. My dear friends, without Christ, we cannot ever possibly expect to be in glory. But if we have Christ, We have a passport right into heaven itself. No authority can ever keep out those who are trusting in him who have overcome by his grace. But then we better hasten on to the church that was in such a fearful state, the church of the Laodiceans. And in verse Uh, 21 of chapter 3 we have Christ saying to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame and am sat down with my father in his throne. Now we must never think we shall come to it but we ought not to think that somehow or other the content of these opening chapters are some way disjointed from the rest of what appears to me mysteriously prophetic throughout the book. Notice the connection immediately between chapter 3 and chapter 4. To him that overcometh, in verse 21, will I grant to sit where? With me in my throne. Even as also I overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Well, that's a wonderful promise, but then we go to chapter 4. What do we read? After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the voice said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be. Isn't that something? Things that might be? Things that could be? No. Things that must be. They must be. Not only are they certain, they are essential. Divinely certain, but in the wisdom of God, essential. Now, this is what John is told, come and see. So, how are these things that must be to ever come to pass? Verse 2, immediately I was in the Spirit, and what? And behold a throne. And behold a throne. The very throne that those who would overcome in this church in Laodicea that was in such a terrible state, This is my promise. You will sit with me and you will share with me my glory and my throne. Now we shall come to consider the throne, the majesty, the glory of it, but you can see immediately there's a connection. We don't just come to the end of the disclosures to the seven churches and think, well, that's a That's a unique part of the book and the rest is different. There is a very clear development and there is a very clear continuation of the message right into the chapter 4. But the promise is, I shall grant him to sit with me. Isn't that something? To sit with me. Now, when it comes to the Lord's table and the people of God profess his sit down, they sit with Christ by faith. He's not physically present, but they sit with him. And that is a most important event to them. A high, high privilege. A wretched sinner, fit for nothing but a lost eternity. Redeemed by grace, sitting with Christ. Here's what he promises. You won't just sit with me at the table of the ordinance, but you shall sit with me in my throne. And you shall sit with me As overcomers. Why am I in my throne? Because I overcame. That's what he says. Even as I also overcame and am sat down in my father's throne. Because I've overcome, I'm entitled to sit in the throne. If you overcome, you'll be entitled to sit with me. In my throne. But then, notice what the Savior says. I will grant him to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame. You know what the Savior is doing? He's not just making a promise. But he is giving encouragement even as i overcame i overcame you do not overcome without a fight what do you overcome if you were to come at the end of the day well i overcame today what did you overcome Essentially implied in that very statement is this. I met with difficulties. I had mountains to climb. I had difficulties to face. But I overcame them. If everything was easy, there's nothing to overcome. There's no trials. No trouble. No difficulties. Well, there's nothing to overcome, is there? It's all smooth and easy sailing. What the Savior is talking about is the life that the believer lives that is filled with difficulties and obstacles and barriers and mountains to climb. And depths to swim through. What did the Savior promise to his Old Testament saints? When thou passest through what? The fire. I will be with thee. But you might have to pass through the fire. But always remember this. I'll go through it with you when thou passest through the waters. They won't drown you. They won't overflow you. Because I'll be with you. And if you drown, I drown. And if I can't drown, you can't drown. That's the promise. And here is what Jesus Christ Glorified is saying to his people, he that overcometh will overcome as I have overcome. What does that mean? Look at me. See how I overcame. And how did he overcome? When did he overcome? In his holy humanity. You see, when we don't overcome, we're condemned. Because he took bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. He walked among men as a man. He lived among men as the man of sorrows and the one who was acquainted with grief. He was not a stranger to human difficulties, the sorrows that are the result of sin. He was made of a woman, made under the law. He lived under that law. He responded to all its demands. He lived among men without sin, tempted, tempted in all points, as they are yet without sin. He was taken, led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness after his baptism to be tempted. But he overcame. In the garden of Gethsemane when he was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground, the tempter had come with all the fury of his Satanic animosity and hatred? Father, I, not as I will, but as thou wilt. You know, some people get the idea that the victory and our redemption was won at Calvary and the cross. It really was won in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he said, Thy will be done. And that secured the redemption of his people. He looked into that terrible cup. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Who does it pass to? You and me. Ah, but thy will be done. I will take it. And I will drink it for them. And the moment he uttered those words, thy will be done, our redemption was guaranteed now hear what is Jesus saying you can overcome because I've overcome I was as human as you and I've been tempted like you and I have met with the devil in all his fury greater than you will ever meet and I overcame and so will you Now then, this is what we've got to understand as we said at the beginning. Where is this? And this is what makes it so solemn and serious. This overcoming. Who are these people? Where are they? They are in the professing church and things are developing and have developed, that it is honoring to Christ, that he's condemning, that he is finding fault with, I have somewhat against you. Now, where among you are they who will overcome? That's what we've got to face up to. Look at the professing church the state it is in. Look at the professing church in this Clarence Valley the state it's in. What do we do? Do we just become ecumenical? Join with a parish priest as a brother in Christ when he says mass? Is that what it's about? That's what's happening in this very area. Each supposed evangelicals, so on, the truth has been compromised in every direction. You do not now preach about hell or judgment the destruction of the ungodly for their sins. You just don't talk about things like that. It's not convenient. It's not appropriate. It certainly is not politically correct. Now take a look at our Savior before he left this world. You go... Uh, to the uh, Gospel according to Luke, and the chapter 19, and there you have the Saviour. He was a man of sorrows, but there were certain sorrows that were unique to him. In the 13th, or the chapter 19, first of all, in uh, Luke, we read there in verse. 41 of this experience of the Savior, verse 41 of Luke 19. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou at least in this day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they're hid from thine eyes. My, I tell you, that is solemn and serious. If we reject the truth, we become blind. And we are left in our blindness. Here is... Jerusalem, the Savior is weeping because of the awful tragedy, humanly speaking. You had your day, you had your opportunity, you rejected it. So now, the truth is hidden from you. It won't make any difference. Now you've become blind and hardened. Now the question is, who is Jesus weeping over here? You go back to the chapter 13 in the same gospel according to Luke. Listen to the Savior, verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. How oft would I have gathered thy children together, as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Now you go back to the Old Testament. Go through the Psalms. Psalm 122, Psalm 116, Psalm 137, and many others, and the prophecies. What do they tell us about Jerusalem? That's where the house of God was. The psalmist rejoiced to go up to the house of God Where was it? Jerusalem. That's where God was worshipped. That's where his people assembled. That was the city of their solemnities. That was the physical, material evidence of the existence of the church in the Old Testament. Here's Jesus weeping over the church. Weeping over Jerusalem. Weeping over a people who are rejecting the truth. Weeping over a people who have received the commandments of men and rejected the commandments of God. Weeping because of the seriously low state, spiritually, that this place, Jerusalem, where David reigned, where Solomon built the great house to the glory of God, where God placed his presence and his honor. And Jesus is weeping. Because he's looking down upon a people who are left blind. They're now hid from your eyes. You ever wonder at times when you speak to people and you present the truth to them, you say, look, look, my friend, there it is, black and white, there it is. There's the word of God. I don't see it. But it's God's word. I don't see it that way. And you can bring every argument up without any effect. You know the reason? They wouldn't receive the truth. They argued with God and they fought with God. And it just leaves them there. Fine. You carry on. You just remain in your ignorance. Fine. You don't need me. That's fine. You carry on in your own strength. You go on trusting in your own wisdom. And here's Christ weeping. The prophets came here. The priesthood was here. The sacrifices were here. The gospel was here. The altar, the priesthood, the lambs, the blood was being shed. The gospel was being preached for centuries here. And now it's nothing but a ritual. The priesthood is corrupt. The Sanhedrin is corrupt. The sacrifices are just dead, empty ceremonies. And he weeps over the church in that state. Now when we come to these seven churches and we have these promises held out to those that overcome, they are not overcoming out there in the world. They are overcoming within the boundaries of the professing church. And how are they going to do that? Well, time doesn't permit us to go any further with it. But we have to understand that the battle that the child of God particularly has to engage in goes on within the bounds of the professing church. You look at every exhortation, every warning, every plea to overcome. I I, I think people take up their Bibles and they think, well, this, this is a book for the world out there. We need to get these Bibles out north, south, east, and west, all over the place. Of course we do. But for what reason? So that the gospel that is in the word of God, the scriptures, might convince them of their sin and their ignorance and bring them to a knowledge of Christ. But let us understand this. To whom was the Pentateuch wrote? The five books of Moses to Israel the church in the Old Testament to whom was Isaiah addressed Jeremiah these were written to the church come to the New Testament why did Paul write an epistle to the Romans he wrote it to the church Ephesians written to the church The Bible is written to the church. And therefore, when we come to the warnings, for example, when Peter warns, the devil goeth about seeking whom he may devour, to whom are those words addressed? The elders in the church. It's the church. And I believe we're living in a dark day when the real battle for the truth is not with the ungodly atheists, but with a compromising church that's compromising the truth. But we shall leave it there, and I trust we take hold of the promises. They're the promises of Christ to as many as overcome. And they overcome, as we read in chapter 12, they overcome by the word of their testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. But we shall leave it there. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we give thee thanks. We have thy truth. We have a glorious Redeemer on high who will bring his people safely to glory, who will grant them grace to overcome. Oh, may that be our desire, every one of us here, to overcome every obstacle, every difficulty, every trial, every tribulation. And then be presented at last in the presence of the Father and before the angels, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Oh, do thou bless and encourage thy people to be steadfast in the truth. Bless thy word, pardon our sins, receive us for Christ's sake. Amen.